Welcome to America's Top Rebutants. May this class be for Rafua Shalema, for Leah Eliana Bat-Amuna, for Lior Tovia Ben-Haya Ashna, and also for Yoav Yehezkel Ben-Perkia Bluma. Please click the subscribe button to subscribe to us on the America's Top Rebutants YouTube page or click follow to follow us on your podcasting app so that you are the first to know when an inspiring new episode is posted. I am so happy to have on today's show Rebetzin Gavura Davis. Rebetzin Gavura is a director of women's and youth programming at the AIDS Hayim Center for Jewish Studies in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for being here. Please tell us more about yourself and what you do. And I'm so sorry. I may have sent you an old bio. Actually, I live in another neighborhood, Balakinwood. Oh, um, yes. Also in that. That's totally right. fine. It's yes. probably, I don't know, you probably got that from Facebook. I'm so lazy. I I, I didn't change it. It's um, all good. My husband and I are the co-directors of East Philadelphia. Okay. If you know, like what Asia Torah is. So we work full-time in Jewish outreach for the past 15 years. It's amazing. Okay, great. Yes. I'm very familiar with Asia. Tell us more. Um, about my work. Well, I, first of all, I love outreach because my husband and I I really grew up with almost no Jewish education, like really momish, very little. Um, I went to church more than synagogue probably as a kid, (laughs) much to my parents who are amazing, amazing, wonderful people, much to their dismay. I was very social and I lived in Georgia and I just went to, I went to church with whoever's house I was sleeping at. Um, That's all just, I'm not advocating church. I'm just saying that I grew up with no Jewish education, became inspired after taking Deborah Lipstadt's Holocaust course in college. I don't know if you know who she is, but her trial she, she's, she's actually the world's expert on Holocaust denial and actually anti-Semitism. And she was just appointed by Biden to a special cabinet position combating anti-Semitism. She is like the world's mumha on anti-Semitism. And she's a professor at Emory University where I was in college. And her trial, which was a big deal at the time, she was sued for libel by a Holocaust denier in London named David Irving. And she won and it was a very big media deal. There's a film called Denial made about it. Um, it's interesting to, to see what happens then. And I knew that it was living history at the time. And so um, even though I saw Schindler's List in high school and I thought, oh, why do I need to like, you know, what do I need to know about the Holocaust? I already know it was bad. Six million people died. I took her course, changed my life forever because I felt that um, all these people died for being Jewish, no matter how Jewish they were, right. even if they were married to a non-Jew, if their parent was married to a non-Jew, it didn't matter. They died because of their Jewishness. And I have very, very little Jewishness in my life. And, and I wonder what it means. How can I, in the face of so much evil, choose to make my life a blessing? Um, the world seems so big and we're so small and what can we ever do? And I really connected with Jewish wisdom that every single second we have the power and potential to elevate the world through our choices. Amazing. Yeah. Thank God. I had one other defining Jewish experience that I was, um, I don't know if you guys might know what like being a cheerleader in Georgia was like, but it was a very um, non-Jewish environment. We would say the Lord's prayer on our knees before every game to pray for the team. And um, our church was evangelical action and wanted us all to go to church to pray. And I stood up to her in a practice in a public way. And she brought a whole defamation thing against me. And I was bullied out of being a cheerleader. And and I didn't really even understand why it mattered to me. Why did I need to defend Judaism? But I did. And it sort of sparked in me an interest in this religion that I am defending that I know nothing about. So I became religious in college. And very soon I felt that um, 
just like the Uri Zohar book, my friends, we were robbed. I felt like, where was this wisdom my whole life? I could have really used it during difficult times in my life. And I feel, and I felt very much then that, um, when we say Marasha Kahilas Yaakov, it's the inheritance of every single Jew. And just like if there was an inheritance attorney, an estate attorney who found out that someone had a tremendous amount of wealth coming to them, even if they didn't know it, even if they didn't know it, it was their obligation to, to find that person and to at least let them know. And then they could choose for themselves if they wanted um, to take up, to cash in on that, on that wealth. So I am, you know, and I felt very much like, you know, had I not have been turned on to Judaism and had I never met outreach professionals, read books, I would have never known. And I would have gone my whole life not knowing. And I did intuitively feel spiritual, but I, you know, I loved Buddhism. I loved meditation. I didn't understand um, what Judaism said and what it had to offer. So I very much feel like the Chavetzayim in, in, um, in his book where he assembles all in his Sefer, where he assembles and lists all the mitzvos, maybe Sefer mitzvos. Um, the first one is Ahavas Hashem. And it says over there, it's very interesting. The Chavetzayim elaborates that if you love Hashem, which is incumbent upon you, it's the first mitzvah, the, the most important mitzvah to love Hashem, it's also incumbent upon you to Ohavabriah, that you have to love Hashem's creation. And part of loving Hashem is if you love someone, you're going to share wisdom with them. You're going to let them know why they were created, why they're here. So I very much feel and felt that, um, outreach is, is a constant mitzvah. It's an obligation and not with persuasion, not with like, you know, sales, but with education that every single Jew should have access to Jewish education, that they should know what the Torah says, and it's their choice. Um, you know, I can't control other people's Bechira. I, I can barely control my own. I'm working very hard on my own, but I very much feel and felt that um, people, that religious Jews have an obligation to care about all Jews. And just like we want to help widows or just like we want to help orphans or just like we want to help Kalas, um, Jews are Jews and people are people. And at this point, Rove, you didn't, you know, the majority of Jews in the world do not have any access to Torah wisdom. They don't know what they don't know. So, and not in a um, condescending way, they just literally have no idea and they can be brilliant in so many areas. Um, but no one ever educated them. So for everyone who wants, I think that it's really, really important that Jews everywhere have access to Jewish education. So that's what we've been doing for 15 years. I, my husband and I lived in Eretz Yisrael for five years. And then um, someone invited us into outreach. Actually, no one thought we could do outreach to tell you the truth. It's very funny because we're two people who have stayed in it for a very long time. And thank God have been, you know, thank God successful and, you know, doing a lot. Thank God with Hashem's help. And just like one little micro lesson is if you know that you can do something and you have co-hosts to do something, um, do not give up. 
And this is part of the whole topic that we're getting into, which is self-esteem and, and how we view ourselves and how the world views us. But we didn't get into a Kiruv training program. Apparently, I was too opinionated because um, I had very strong opinions about Kiruv. And most of the people who they were recruiting, you know, had grown up religious. So I had become religious on campus with a lot of my peers. And I had very strong opinions about how Kiruv should, should be done, shouldn't be done. I've tried to humble myself. Since that, since that interview that we were not accepted to a Kiruv training program. And then someone said to us, oh, like the person who was the expert with Kiruv job placement said, you have an offer in Kansas City, you better take it because I don't think anyone else is going to want you guys. So I'm just saying that I knew, I, like I knew, you know, I, everyone has, I, I knew, I felt very much lahav deal, but really like it was an Esther moment for me where I felt like, I just know that this is why I was created. This is why Hashem gave me this life, these circumstances, these challenges, every single thing. And I just knew that this was my tafkir and that I should try to share that. Wow. The degree that I could. And so, um, even though (laughs) it was against a lot of odds, um, I just feel like we all have, especially women, that inner bina, that inner intuition of, you know, knowing what we're supposed to be doing. I didn't know the way and the how and the mechanisms and if this would work or if that would work, but I really knew to listen to, um, to my neshama that was really moving us in this direction. And I'm really glad I did, Baruch Hashem. So my husband was part of um, an outreach kollel in Kansas City for eight years. Wow. I know there's 20, there's 20,000 Jews there, which is everyone's next question. 20,000 Jews in Kansas. And it's beautiful and amazing and an incredible community that we have so, so, so much a car to to. And, um, but at a certain point, the Chinuch was not great for our kids. And our Rebbe had always said that after fifth grade, our, our, our boys should really not be in a co-ed environment. And so <coughs> we were looking for another job and, Thank God, here we are. It's so, so amazing. Baruch Hashem, I mean, really, I feel like, you know, just to speak with you, like you were really cut out for Kiruv. I think this, I agree with you. This is 100% the perfect position for you, especially, especially because you started off not being so religious. So you really kind of understand yeah. the secular world and you can understand where, where many of the non-religious Jews are coming from. You could really, I mean, really, honestly, honestly, authentically get them and really understand them. And gently, slowly with education, as you said, teach them about the Torah and introduce them to, to different mitzvot that they could be doing and slowly, slowly, gradually, maybe hopefully they'll become observant. Yes. And it's interesting, but I actually think that any, I, I, it's interesting. I used to think that I was cut out for it because of my unique background and childhood and experiences and lack of religiosity or whatever. But I actually think interestingly, it's really about loving people. Wow. and connecting to people. And I like, you know, in high school, I was like the queen debater and I was very into like persuasive arguments and, and seemed gifted in it. And I thought that that was the Kiruv skill, but many years in the field and a lot of humility and awareness really actually led me to think that it wasn't that, that it's really anybody can and should be doing outreach because it's really just about loving people and all of like I remember when I lived in Eretz Yisrael like I was so arrogant I thought I can't wait to move to America they're going to ask me so many questions and I can explain hair covering so well that they're all going to want to cover their hair and I can explain Shabbos so well and interestingly people don't actually ask a lot of questions Um, people really want you to hear them 
and to see them and to experience them. And I think that that's what we all want. And speaking of Rebbitsons, I think that what I have found, because I know that you're very interested in the subject and that you are such a leader in, in really um, bringing Rebbitsons wisdom to the world. And I, I love your shows and I really appreciate what you're doing that. Um, I think, you know, there's no, anytime that there's a class called like the secret to, or, you know, three easy steps to Simcha or save your marriage in six weeks or whatever. I don't really like, to me, that is a red flag because I think that everything amazing and meaningful and complex, um, the secret is you and the hard work. And I like the hard work of Rebbitsons, I think is expansiveness to really, you know, we try to take, and obviously I can't speak for everyone, but for myself, we try to take our finite time, resources, energy, love, and expand it. And I know that a lot of people do have tainas on their Rebbitsons. Like, like I, is that okay for me to bring up something like somewhat controversial and, you know, whatever, say the quiet thing out loud that sometimes people have very high expectations and I do too. And I think that it speaks to, maybe we'll get into this when we talk about self-esteem, everybody wants to feel seen and understood and thought of and cared about, and especially by their Rebbitsin. It's like a very unique sort of position. Someone could be the most powerful and successful person in their domain. And, you know, when, when they're in times of crisis or for their Simcha, you know, people really want the love and, and, and sharing of their Rebbitsin. And I think that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a tremendous, um, avoda and obviously no one can do anything without Hashem's loving help and guidance. But I think that it's, it's really challenging because I'm one of the very few, unfortunately, but I have to really give a huge shout out to my community and our school and to our board who, um, see, saw and continue to see, and I had to work hard for this, but saw the importance of having a full-time Rebbitzin, um, at our school. And I'm very, very blessed and very fortunate. It's a real bracha because, um, most people aren't as blessed and fortunate in my position. And a lot of Rebbitsons have a full-time job and a family yes, and their own lives and their own Nisaya notes. And so it's hard to piece it all together and make times for our health and our parents and our kids and our spouses. And I think that, um, it's really important and good for the community. And it doesn't have to be a Rebbitson doesn't have to be a professional, you know, it can just be leaders in the community who, and what really is the role, one of the roles of a Rebbitson is to support their community and to support right. women in their community. My husband's very Macbid men with men and women with women. And he's fortunate that I work full time in this, that we can do that. But, um, you know, the role, one of the roles of a Rebbitson is really to support people and we should all be supporting each other. Women should be like your podcast. You saw a need or or a nature or, or something that could be great. And I'm sure that you were thinking, um, I can't do it or who am I or whatever. Yeah. Um, how am I going to like, just suddenly start like, you know, America's top Rebbitson. I, I don't know. Maybe you knew a lot of Rebbitsons, maybe not, <laughs> but I think that we can all do something to support each other. A hundred percent. And, and it's, 
there's an amazing organization you should totally interview her when you can Aliza Bulow and um, core core Helm and yes. um, Alyssa Felder and just amazing women who are building these circles of support. Aliza, it's, it's a wonderful organization. I totally agree. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. Anyways. Um, so yes. So I wanted to thank you. Thank you so much for that. I love, I'm I love sorry, you. I, do, I should have warned you. I do, I, you know, and it's an amazing thing about like raising kids with ADD that everyone's greatest superpower is also, um, a challenge. So when I'm interviewed, I think very fast and talk very fast and have a lot going on. So I'm sorry if I move from topics to topics. No, I, you know, I loved it because it made your answer to that question. Please tell us more about yourself, what you do so rich. It really gave us such a full background, you know, not only about who, you know, what you do, but also about who you are. I just think that it makes everything more richer. I think it's going to make your subsequent answers even richer because I feel like we can already really connect with you. So this is a great thing. Thanks. Um, so as you mentioned, today, we're going to talk about uh, redefining the beauty of a Jewish woman. We're going to be talking about self-esteem. And every woman naturally wants to be beautiful. And every society has their own definition of beauty, which I find is really, really interesting. You know, having only lived in, in the United States, this is a society that I'm used to. Right now in our Western society, beauty is defined by being young, thin, and fashionable. We see billboards and magazine covers and television images that display women wearing revealing clothes, short skirts, crop tops, and really not much else. Youth and a skinny body reign supreme in our society. And personally, it's very interesting. I find it fascinating because when I was younger, I went to Jamaica on vacation. And one of the local Jamaican men in the, in the hotel that I was staying at, he told me that he doesn't personally find American women attractive because they are too skinny. And he said that in Jamaica... For a girl to be attractive, she needs to be big and round. Those were his words. Those are not my words, but he said, you know, big and round is what I want to move to Jamaica. (laughs) I know that's what I thought also. Exactly. And it's so funny because I read in a magazine article also years ago about Jamaican women. It's very interesting. They were getting sick because they were actually eating animal feed, like animal feed, the food that farmers feed to animals. The Jamaican women were eating that feed in order to gain weight so that men would find them attractive. It's so bizarre. It was the information is so shocking that I never forgot it because here in the United States, women are starving themselves. They're going on fad diets and they're exercising like crazy so that they can fit the skinny standard laid out for them by our society. And not once did anyone mention the attractiveness of a woman based on who she is as a person. Not once. I mean, I have met skinny women who are very unfriendly and unpleasant to be with, unfortunately. And I have met curvy women who exude true happiness and uh, love, love for life. And I feel like it's all outside perceptions and people aren't looking as deeply into each other as they should be. So I want to ask you if you can please share with us what we as Jewish women should strive for in order to be beautiful in the eyes of Hashem. I love that. And and I have to say that I used to always say, you know, I've struggled with my weight for a long time. You know, I had like a low key eating disorder in high school, like all the girls did. It was like just disordered eating and disordered body image and how we view ourselves was just par for the course. It wasn't even like, you know, I mean, the worst that it ever got was that I I really starved myself, you know, in the cheerleading culture, that was really big. Um, So it's really disappointing to me, by the way, to see that in from culture, not judging, I understand it, but it's very upsetting to me. um, Because I felt like, oh, well, of course, secular culture views women this way. They're not enlightened. They don't understand. So it's very challenging to see the effects of Western society rearing its ugly head in this area. I totally <laughs> agree. Community, and I'm not judging, I'm empathizing. Um, 
you know, I have two teenage preteen teen daughters and, and I, and I get it. Um, it's a challenge, but like the worst that mine was, was, you know, like passed out once a few times, like had to go through therapy outpatients, of course, but then honestly, <coughs> I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an eating disorder expert and there are all sorts of brilliant therapists in this worldview, uh, in this field, but I am the opinion that people are in recovery. They're never cured. So, um, society's <coughs> emphasis on beauty, especially for women is, is, um, is a reality. It's sad. It's disappointing. I used to always say, I wish that, you know, I would have lived in like 19th century Europe where it was really cool to be overweight, but now I'll, I, you know, Jamaica, modern day Jamaica. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's crazy. But I but think it's true. what's interesting, what we learn from this is that it seems to be a subjective standard. Yeah. You know, like famously Marilyn Monroe wore a size 10 to 12. Yes. And maybe even 14, they say the equivalent of now, but she was considered like the sexiest woman alive of her generation. So like what changed, right. you know, and, and how do we, as from women, you know, we live as much as we live in our communities, the Olam is, is a strong influence in from society. And I don't know if it's true, but I've heard, <coughs> sorry, both no COVID, but you wouldn't get it from the screen anyway. <laughs> it's all good. <coughs> that both statistically and anecdotally that perhaps the incidence of disordered eating and eating disorders is even higher in the from community than in the general community. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that from people who I respect. And I think that suffice to say, we have a problem. We yes. really, really have a problem. And, you know, we want to be forward thinking, we want to be solution oriented and, you know, just like, because it's poor now. And I was just giving an assembly in the high school, we say like, we have to have our Esther, Esther had her moment, but really she had a lifetime of standing up in the face of tremendous challenge <coughs> and being responsive. So I think we're all aware of the problems. Um, how can we move forward? And the statistics are just like astounding. If you just do any Google search for body image or how people view themselves, like Dove did this amazing campaign. Actually, a college friend of mine was the artistic director and videographer of um, the Dove beauty campaign, which like comes up on YouTube often, you know, whatever. And they quote startling statistics, like really the MS startling. And I wish I could say that in, in our world, it wasn't like this, but you know, like nine out of 10 girls want to change their whole physical appearance. Um, six out of 10 girls are so concerned with the way they look that it's holding them back from important activities in life. Only four, I, I read only 4% of women around the world consider themselves beautiful. 72% of girls identify with tremendous pressure to be beautiful. Um, 
80% of women agree that every woman has something about her that's beautiful, but they don't see it in themselves. So this is sad. I mean, this is just, it's, you know, we want a better world for our girls. We want a better world for our sons. We want them to be contributing to the solution. Of course, um, I guess I would be remiss without mentioning the shit up problem with looks, um, not only, you know, in some circles it's common, you know, and I, I make a lot of shidduchim calls. I get called a lot for girls and it's just a very normal norm. It doesn't mean it's right, but it's a normative question. Is she thin? What I can't even imagine family? asking that. Like I can't, I, okay. Okay. I believe you, but it's just a crazy question. Okay. I, I know I didn't believe it. I was like, Oh, come on. Not in our circles, but I've had Rabbitsons asked me that about girls for their boys. Um, not to indict Rabbitsons. I'm just saying like, these are like amazing, amazing women in many, many areas, but this, you know, Yidin are not exempt from the Olam. Like, right. and, and now more than ever, you know, there's tremendous pressure on women. And I, I don't want to like, I think we have to be honest and real that, um, there's different ways of viewing the world and there's nothing wrong with wanting to look beautiful. That's a natural Norman, normal female desire. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be perceived as beautiful. There's nothing wrong with liking nice clothes. There's nothing wrong with, you know, putting on makeup. I love makeup, but I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves is what are we doing it for? What's the end goal? And often the topic of feeling beautiful and looking beautiful is impossibly connected to self-esteem. And many, many, many of our gadolim, the, the very wise ones, the, the, the manhege mador, who are really have a pulse on the people and what we're going through as a people collectively, say that self-esteem is a challenge for every single person alive today. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, because the world, I mean... <clears throat> It's, you know, you reference like media, social media, um, the, like the pressure to look and, and, and be perceived as beautiful is, is tremendous for young girls and old girls. (laughs) Look at the amounts of money that we spend as a society, both in from culture and not in from culture. And so I think we need to think about where is it coming from? What are our goals and how can we engender in our children and in our most important child, how can we really feel good about ourselves? How can we like both who we are internally and, and hopefully who we are externally as a reflection of that? Right. So if it's okay with you, um, Okay. My kids are going to be late, which is good for me. There's an accident on the boulevard. Um, anyways, how can we like the reason that I came to Torah Judaism and that I was drawn to it. And I think the reason that all of us are religious is because we believe that the creator of the universe gave us a roadmap to life. How can we, God created us to be Simchadik, happy people, the shalom people, people who have an inner yeshuv hadas and a menuchas nefesh that we can live feeling very good about ourselves. 
right? That the author of the universe gave us the Torah, the creator of everything, the same entity, the same essence that created mountains and galaxies and grass and the intricate complexity of human anatomy and DNA. The author of all of that loves us and wants us to live beautiful lives. And part of living beautiful lives is feeling good about ourselves. So it has to be that the Torah has some wisdom on this subject. Now, Hashem created in us a nature to objectify people. And we see already by Adam and Hava, right? I mean, and so I guess I want to just acknowledge that appearance is part of attraction. So that's on one level, what's motivating people, right? You want to be attracted to your spouse. And if you look at just, you know, the Midrash that says that Hashem braided Hava's hair when he presented her to Adam. Now, Adam, I mean, it's kind of mind blowing. Like we, you know, most people don't know why we braid Hava. We don't really know. But one understanding is that Hashem braided Hava's hair on Arab That's Shem. amazing insight. Wow. But, but I'm saying like, so we say that all the time. Most kids learn that Midrash, right? Okay, but Adam Harishon, right? Before the hate and, and even after was, was a guddle, not just a guddle. Adam was, his whole essence was spiritual. Now, yes, he was created from the Adama, which means that he constantly had this push and pull, right? Partly reaching upwards in a spiritual connection and partly being pulled back to the Adama constantly. So that taiva, that desire to, you know, what the I see to create that desire for Hava, Hashem planted that desire in him, right? You know, like the non-Jewish, when people talk about like evolution, okay, so we understand why intimacy feels good because that perpetuates people and what attracts people to each other. We see it, you know, with behemoths, that there is attraction, but that Hashem felt the need to braid her hair is very confusing, right? Yes. So I think that it sort of, and to, to sort of defend those mothers in Shadokham, I'm not saying that it's the right thing to do. And I hope to Hashem, but I will not ask that question about my boys, about their future wives, Hashem, because this is like, when people ask me that, I'm like, this is the mother of your future children potentially. And you're asking me about like her size, like, I, you know, and they ask other questions too, but it just seems on such a low operational wavelength, like of, of humanity when you're talking about your future spouse, but that all being said, let's be real. You know, it's, it's us or for someone to marry someone who they're not attracted to. Cause I'll tell us that also. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm saying is let's give ourselves permission that if Adam Harishon felt the need to like enhance Hava, right? Give her, you know, a beautiful hairstyle to make her presentable and desirable and attractive to Adam. So it makes sense that we, by nature, want to feel beautiful and we'll, we'll spend time, money, effort, energy into, into that process. So let's normalize it. It's normal. It's human nature. Okay. So where does it go so wrong? So if you look at, um, 
I, I wish that I wasn't running. I wish that I hadn't been running late because I, I, there's so much to say on the, there's so much to say on the subject. Maybe I'll just say this is part one. And at some point I'll have a chance to, to share more about it. But because I also, I work for an organization called My Gifts of Mikvah. I think you had Rachel. Yes, Rachel Goldham. Yes. That was how I actually heard about you. Our teacher, our me- our mentor, Rachel, who's the head of my gifts of one of the educational heads of my gifts of Mikvah. So a group of us share with um, primarily non-religious women about Mikvah, about the beauty of Mikvah, because it's, you know, it's Marasha's Kahilas Yaakov, right? It's something that everyone should have access to, to choose or not choose. Um, unfortunately, fortunately, every time we speak, the from women... Um, want more because this isn't something that's discussed that often, but connected, intimately connected to intimacy is uh, to mikvah is intimacy, right? Which, yes. you know, intimacy between a husband and wife, yes, which is the word that they like us to use. Um, <clears throat> so intimately connected to intimacy is, is the study of human relationships. So let's look at Adam and Chava. And, you know, when people tell me that the Bible's boring, I'm like, really, have you read it? It's pretty exciting. <laughs> um, when we talk about Adam and Chava, it says that a, a, you know, it says by Adam that I, should I use Hebrew or English? You could, you could go from between because right. yeah. so I don't know if I should have asked you who your audience is. So what does it mean? Right. So first Adam has to leave his mother's home and cleave to his wife. Of course, the word is vacus, which is almost impossible to translate because it really means a full clinging, like Devekas is holding on for dear life. We're supposed to hold on to ourselves for dear life. And um, the Hahaman tell us that this is this is really an allusion to their physical intimacy, right? When they're Devekas, um, that, that, that they're like connected to each other in such an intimate way. And when the Torah talks actually about intimacy, it often uses the word um, for knowledge, right? Yes. Now, people erroneously think that, like, that it's because we're tsnias and we are tsnias, and you know, we're not going to use like common vernacular to talk about such a holy and important and tremendous aspect of our lives, God willing. But it's also revealing a deep lesson that great intimacy comes with knowledge. So what kind of knowledge? What does it mean to understand someone? What does it mean to really be one with someone? So when it talks about Adam and Chava, it says that they were um, that they were clinging to each other. They were one flesh. And, and Mamish, like, there's no higher and deeper connection between two people than to be Basar Echad. Like, you're one. One, one, one. And it says, interestingly, right after that, of course, famously, that they were alone in the garden. They weren't on Aden together. What were they wearing? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> totally naked before each other. So long before B'nai Brown and modern sex therapists told us that the foundation of real intimacy is, is acceptance, is to really be vulnerable, to really be naked with someone, not just in a physical sense, but what does that Torah nakedness mean? This is all of me and all of you. And, and that's hard to really show someone who are real essences, because what if they see a pimple? What if they don't like me? What if, if I shared with someone, all of my fears, doubts, insecurities, you know, often we love talking about hopes and dreams, sometimes not, but if, if someone really saw the real, real, real me, maybe they would run, but that isn't what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, 
they, it wasn't until after the hate that they really felt, oh, and it also says they weren't embarrassed. Right. After the hate is when like these famous Sistine Chapel pictures come of them covering with a fig leaf. But what we understand from Adam and Chava is that their eyes didn't just see skin and flesh. And actually there's no drashim even about what their skin and flesh looked like, but they didn't just see someone for their physicality. They didn't objectify each other. They literally saw the essence of the other person and they liked it and they were attracted to each other. And what is the essence of another person? That they're Tzalem Elohim. That even the pimples, the wrinkles, the gray hair, you know, whatever it may be. And then plus like the big stuff, like real challenges to our personalities that Azam and Chava had this ability to really see it, but not limit themselves that, oh, so now I'm scared. So now I think they're ugly. So I have to run. And this is why, by the way, we reference Adam and Chava so often under the Sheva brachas, right? Because under the chuppah, our bracha to each other, to the chasen and kala, and I love Simcha's. It's just at a beautiful wedding of one of my closest friend's sons last night and many, many this season. Mazel and so. there's, thank you. There's no Simcha like that. It's, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Why? Because when they're standing under the chuppah, there's no water under the bridge. There's no, it's so clear how much they yearn for each other. They desire each other. You can just like see it on their face. It's almost like I, I like you want to look away because it's, they're so intimate with each other. Very, yes. You want to look away. Cause it's, you know, you want to, you know, like somehow find a way to share in that simple while not, you know, Whatever. So anyway, so why do we reference that under the chuppah? Because, you know, their relationship then didn't go so well. I mean, there was major issues. They both had tremendous resentment and blame towards one another. But I think that that's what marriage is. You know, marriage is all of it. There's a lot. And it's very normal to that Adam and Chava, they're two separate beings, right? And you know, we know the Midrashim that first there was just Lilith. Oh, first actually Adam was androgynous, but he, but he was lonely and Hashem saw that that wasn't good. Then he created Lilith who was exactly like him and they hated each other. So then finally we settle on Chava, who's his Ezer Kenegdo. Now in modern Hebrew to say, you know, right. That's a pejorative. Like don't be neged. Neged means against. So why would uh, someone's soulmate be called their Azer Connecto. And we just really understand that it's through that Neged that a person is also an Azer, right? That they see the whole of you and they help you grow and develop. And that can only happen in an atmosphere of safety and love and connection wow. and really beautiful. But we're, we're davening, we're benching them that they should see each other like that. Well, number one, there was only two people at the time right? There was only Azam and Hava. Right. And so they only had eyes for each other because there was no Instagram. There was, nothing, <laughs> you know, there was nothing, nothing, nothing else out there. And, and we, we daven that a Hassan and Kala should live like that their whole lives, that they only have eyes for each other there. And what one idea of beauty that, that I want to get into, I hope Mitz Hashem, is that so much of it is about comparison. Yes. How we look vis-a-vis our peers, um, models. And, you know, now we know now it's like so well-known and especially now everyone has a filter 
but it, it used to be not understood that all the billboards and all the models and all the magazines, it was all filtered. It was all Photoshopped, you know, they're like Adrian Gold, who I would love it if you could sometime get her. I know she's very, very hard to reach, but my teacher, she always shares with us um, these videos of, you know, the models that you see are actually like Neanderthals. Like they're not even real people. You know, we know famously that Barbie couldn't walk, right? right? If, her, if we tried to create a, a person with, with her proportions of waist to, to breast to butt, like they, they wouldn't be able to walk because that's not real. So when we're blessing people to be like Adam and Hava, we're really saying like, not the Insta version of you, not the fake book version of you, the real you. And that it's, I only have eyes for you. The other reason, I mean, one of the, I mean, there's so many beautiful, there's so much beautiful Torah on Adam and Hava and why we talk about them under the chuppah, but also because they, they really, um, they saw the essence of one another. And we hope we want to be like that in our marriages and in our treatment of other people, the pre-hate version, right? right. That, that you don't, it, it's so hard because like, I have a friend who told me that her husband, she was much older than me an older friend of mine told me that her husband was so upset that every time he walked past her and brushed against her, she would suck in. And, and so you might think, okay, he likes that because I want him to think that I'm thin. And he said, how can I have a relationship with the sucked in version of you? Don't you trust me? Wow. Yeah. And this is what, um, I love Dr. Brene Brown. And there's been so much work in this field, in the secular world about how, you know, and so because I teach on intimacy and I coach in the general sense, not, I'm not a coach. I love coaches, but I'm not a coach, but I, when I talk to people, you know, part, and that's part of the role of a rabbi in Rebbiton is people bring up intimacy issues to us a lot. And this is something Baruch Hashem, that I have a lot of experience speaking about. Like, I almost feel like they send me when no one else wants to talk about it to like public school kids or whatever, because, and maybe that goes back to my background. Like you said, that I'm very comfortable talking about this subject for better or worse, um, because I I'm very passionate about it. And something, and I have a lot of friends who are sex therapists. I hope that you interview them also. They're amazing. That um, there's so much research that, like you said, when people think about what's beautiful, you know, if you ask who has the best intimate life, who's having the best sex, you know, if you were to ask people that on the street, um, of course they would say the young people, the pretty people, the skinny people, but that's actually not what the research suggests. Really? Yes. The research suggests that people that have the most, the, the deepest ona'a, right? The people that have really like the best pleasure, pleasureful, intimate life are the people who trust each other the most, the people who communicate the most. And interestingly, we see a, um, you know, to the degree that comparisons and that Instagram is in the bedroom. It's very, very, very bad for couples. I mean, you should have a show another time with an expert that talks about, um, unfortunately, the pornography problem. Yes, I Not know that is an world, issue. But unfortunately, yes, in our world as well. Lo Alenu Rahman Alitzlan Hashem should help. Yes, um, you know, as Kala teachers, we're hearing. Can I save it? Is this okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you can it out if it's not. I didn't even ask you who your audience is, but full-time yeshiva learning Bahram asking 
their callas for Brazilians. Yes. Like how, how does a Bachar know that, you know? So we have a real problem of objectification. Um, and, and those Shava Brachas are as important now as they were then that unfortunately people are brainwashed into thinking that this is what beauty is and this is what good intimacy is, but it's not. Um, statistically speaking, it's actually supposed to get better over time, not worse. Of course, Tars Mishpacha is a big part of that, but also just really trusting the other person, really seeing them for who they are, being able to express your, your wants, your needs, your desires intimately. And this has nothing to do with someone's size. In fact, there are some, there is some research, some statistics that indicate that larger women actually have better intimate lives because um, women, it, it's really who's comfortable in their body. Right. A hundred percent. That does seem to be counterintuitive because it would be very hard to feel comfortable in your body if you're a larger woman in today's society. Mm-hmm. But I think what it means, if, if we can try to like intuitively understand how that could possibly make sense, it's really that the people that have the best intimate lives are the people who feel the best. So how can we, in this insane world, feel good about ourselves? So if you don't mind, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, um, Sarah Imenu. I mean, there's so many, there's so much wisdom on, on great Torah, female role models. Um, we have Esther Hamalka, but, but I'll start with Sarah. So famously, of course, Haya Sarah begins by telling us that Sarah was 120 and seven years old. And Rashi says, of course, that when she was a hundred, she had the, um, she was free of sin. You know, she, she had the Yerushalayim. She was free of hate, like a 20 year old. And when she was 20, she had the beauty of a seven year old. Wow. Right. So it's very baffling because <laughs> in the secular world, I mean, in the world in general, we would, when would we say is a woman's peak beauty? Uh, right. Like 20. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Remember once I was on vacation in spring break in Destin, Florida, when I was in middle school, we had just started, unfortunately, middle school is where this starts with, you know, wanting to get all the new things and all the trendy things and the makeup and dressing for other people. I was in the bathroom. I mean, this is like San Destin, this is Destin, Florida, like not very, very non-good environments. And we were changing in like some fancy popular restaurants or we were, we were applying our Clinique green makeup and that green, the box, the compact. I don't know if you remember those yes, um, yes. anyways. So we were changing and this woman who was like, she seemed so old at the time. I'm sure she was in her thirties um, <laughs> to us, like middle schoolers. She was like, enjoy your beauty now because like, this is all you have to look forward to. And she talked about like her wrinkles. And yeah, it was really like, we were like, okay, weirdo. Like, you know, I mean, we didn't like, I don't think that that one incident impacted me so much, but I remember it because I remember thinking, oh gosh, well, I better live up my beauty then because, you know, I was like perceived as a pretty person or popular person, whatever. I got a lot of positive feedback from my peers about my appearance, which at the time I thought was a good thing. But now in retrospect, I see, like, I think all the parenting wisdom now is like, don't comment all the time on a kid's, you know, it's so tempting to be like, oh, you're my prettiest little thing. And and I'm like that too. I I say that to my kids, even though I know not to, or, you know, I try to stop myself, but it's, it's hard. And, um, like we really want to teach our children 
and ourselves not to be dependent on how other people view us. Um, so, so getting back to Sarah, so there's a lot of different, it it seems counterintuitive. Most people would say peak beauty would be 20 and maybe free of sin would be seven, right? Yes. They haven't behaved yet. They didn't really have Bechira yet. So they wouldn't be judged on their actions. So there's a lot of different commentaries on it. And, um, I want to just mention one. Um, I think it's the Yeshua Smalki, um, one of those like 19th century European commentators who said that it was really Sarah's attitude towards her beauty that made her at 20, like seven. So a seven-year-old, you know, they haven't been through puberty yet. So as much as you might want to say, okay, maybe it's because they're angelic looking or haven't developed yet. What the sages that I have read, the commentaries that I have read say that it was really more about her attitude. Now, Sarah objectively was a beautiful woman, right? The Gemara says she was one of the four most beautiful women who ever lived. Yes. And so like, we have to ask ourselves, okay, so like when, hus- when the Gemara says that, what does it mean? She had a straight nose, tan skin, skinny. Like, I don't think so. It's hard to believe that that's what the Gemara meant. But we know that all the kings wanted to marry her, right? They could have anyone. And when Sarah walked in, I think it happens twice, right? That the kings wanted to drop everything to marry Sarah because she was so attractive to them. So what does that mean? So a seven-year-old, I don't have any seven-year-olds anymore, but I remember so well that a seven-year-old, when they, if you let them dress themselves, which I do encourage parents to do, um, it was very hard for me. Both of my daughters wanted to wear dresses at their bat mitzvah that were like, not my favorite. And I, you know, I didn't feel like where's flattering or whatever. And I kept trying to like catch my, like check myself, like, okay, it's their simcha. It's their simcha. This is not. And you know, I think parents make the mistake of like, it's like a vanity project for us, right? Like our kids should be our trophies. Um, that everyone should see them and see how beautiful they look at their bat mitzvah. And it's really a shame that even in our circles, so much of the emphasis and comments that you'll get is how beautiful they looked. So, so when it comes to a seven-year-old, they're not dressing for other people. If you let them, that's what I was going to say. If you let them dress themselves, what will they come down in often? Like mismatching things, whatever, like rain (laughs) boots and hair like this. And yes you know, 10 necklaces and, and, and you're, it's like, booba, like, don't embarrass me in public, you know, especially (laughs) by the way, that's another thing. Rabbitsons do feel often. I can only speak for myself, but speaking to a lot of my friends, it's very hard living in a fishbowl. You know, I became a you know, public Rabbitson when I was 28, expecting my third 26, sorry, 26, expecting my third child didn't know what was flying in life really like you know, I, I grew up with a lot of challenges. Having kids was very challenging for me. And then suddenly like you have to show up in the kiddish with like your kids matching. And if you don't show up at the kiddish, then like, you know, you're a bad rabbit thing. Cause you didn't come for that person's simcha or, or which thing. And if you show up with your kids, not looking good or having chocolate on their face, then you just know that it's going to be spoken about. I mean, hopefully not, but it's just the reality. And I, I think that in general, as a society, we're trying to give people compliments to show like, you know, a term of endearment. But I personally think I know for me, let's say like, and I'm not a very aesthetic person by nature. 
um, would have been good to come with my Rabbitson degree, but it didn't. So like, you know, and I live in an area where people, well, maybe it's all areas where there is a lot of emphasis on appearance and it's hard for me. I don't have the money or the time or for me, the effort. Some people really enjoy dressing beautifully, having beautiful shaitals, you know, nice shoes for me. I don't, it's really an avoda. And, you know, when people do compliment, it's like, it's just a reinforcement that everyone's noticing. Understood. And I think women do this to each other all the time. And now like the modern science is you don't always need to comment on how everyone looks. And like people, like I said, you know, the weight journey has been a big journey for me, um, to try to be healthy. And I really want to be healthy, but there is a tremendous pressure also to look good. And I think that by constantly comment, did you lose weight? You look so good. What'd you do? I mean, this is just normative vernacular. When you see someone to ask them, did they lose weight or, you know, oh, that dress or those, those new shoes. And, you know, like shades all like each eyelash, like each thing. And I think that it's, we're setting ourselves up and our daughters to, to think that to, to reaffirm our fear that yes, people are looking and noticing and recording and whatever that means. Right. Right. But you, but you know, since we only have like one more minute left, I just, I wanted to summarize something that I wrote it down that you actually said that I think really hit the nail right on the head because you said a woman's attitude toward her own beauty is what makes her so attractive. And I think that really hits the core of everything that we were trying to, to say today, that it's not her shaitel, her hair, her dress, her figure, her body, whether she's skinny or fat, it's not any of those superficial, let me see them kind of things. What it is, is her essence and her attitude toward herself. If she feels confident, if she feels beautiful on the inside, regardless of what she looks on the outside, she's going to project that self-confidence. She's going to project that self-worth. And really in the end, she's going to project that beauty. And people are going to find her beautiful because she finds herself beautiful. And that comes out in her attitude. So I think you hit it right on the head. thousand percent. Yes. And I think that like, you know, a lot of schools want me and I'm happy to speak to any of your schools. This is something very passionate about. I, because for whatever reason, I don't like money. I, I don't even charge because I'm so passionate about this subject. When people ask me when the high school girls and, and their teachers, the Majahim and the principals want me to speak to the girls about this subject. What I say to them is, listen, let me give you a lesson in how to win friends and influence people. Now, that's not something that we really want to like be so hochmadik about necessarily. But when I say to people, what is it that you really want? Why do you want people to think that you're beautiful? Because this is a natural human desire. This is seems to be who we are, right? So what is it that you really, really, really want? You want people to like you. Right. And we must, we erroneously think that it's the size or the shoes or which thing that will make people like us, but that's actually not it. And, and I'll just, in our, in our last 30 seconds, share with you that what I have learned and just in my own humble experiences, studying people, advising people, understanding people, it's people like people who like them. A hundred percent. And if you look at people who how you perceive, how you are perceived by other people has everything to do with how you make people feel. I mean, we know that um, Maya Angelou famously said, people forget what you say, they forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. 
So when you look at someone like Esther Hamalka, because it's Purim, well, I don't know when this will be airing, but here it's Purim this week. And when we think it's the same story with Esther, why would it be that Ahasuerus would choose her? You know, he, over all of the women, she was the only one who Daka didn't want to be chosen, right? So when he said, here's the prescribed beauty treatments, she only, only, only did the bare essentials. Everyone else was offered every enhancement and she Dafka didn't choose. So, and there's even like a midrash that says that Esther had green skin. So what would, what could have possibly besides Hashem's power drawn Esther to Ahasuerus, who he wasn't exactly a deep guy, right? I mean, there's actually interesting things about how he was actually very chachmadik in certain ways, not chachmadik, but smart, you know, he, why he chose Esther, but certainly on a superficial level, what we must know is that Esther, he saw something in her Esther. And, and the same thing with Sarah. And I wish we had more time to expound on Sarah, but I'll just say, I'll end by saying beauty is symmetry beauty is consistency. Like I'm saying from a secular perspective, you study, what is beauty? People often say it's symmetry. I took a course on this in college. So what does it mean symmetry? So from a Torah perspective, it's the insides matching the outside, right? And we learn this by the Aron with the gold wood gold, right? That's, I think it was the Aron or the Parochim, which I know the Aron, the, 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 what housed the Aron that it has to be that your essence is good. And, and I always say to like my, to, to my ladies who, who maybe aren't observant who I teach and you know, whatever is that, please, I beg you spend a fraction of the amount of time you work on your external appearance. And by the way, I'm an avid exerciser. I really believe in there's nothing wrong with, with, with working on your appearance. But just also spend time, it would be great, halavai, if it was equivalent, right? The amount of time we spent on physical enhancements as we did on inner, you know, the inner work. And the inner work is very hard. It's very easy to get a spray tan. It's very easy to get fake eyelashes. And and again, I'm not condemning nails or, or any of it. But know that people love people who make them feel good. And if you want people to like you, my friends, and I'm talking to myself here and my kids as much as anyone work on you, be a person who's likable, make people feel good. And especially, I think just, it's good to end on when it comes to ladies, be ladies who support each other, be ladies who maybe when we get dressed, we think about how it will make other people feel because it's, you know, society and pressure and competition, it's really a real thing. And I'm not saying downplay yourself and please don't misunderstand me. It's not a mitzvah to be ugly or anything like that. Remember, I started by saying that Hashem braided Hava's hair. So this is real, but at the same time, let's please, 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 please Hashem and, and all of us lift each other up create a culture of love and acceptance. And we never know what other people are going through, but if you love people, they'll love you. And we should love people because every single person is made Salam Elohim. And the more we can tap into our Salam Elohim, the more we'll have the light of Esther and Sarah Imenu and really shine forth and really be truly attractive people. People who, you know, my favorite book to read with my kids was Wonder, my favorite, you know, school book, Wonder. And, And the end of Wonder is, for those of you that aren't familiar, it's about a boy who has severe, um, facial deformity. And it's a condition that I'm forgetting the name of it, but um, 
it, it really put the school in, in, it was challenging when a boy came with his major, major, major facial deformity. And he always says, be his teacher, this very special teacher in the school would say, be the kind of person, build yourself into the kind of person that when people see you, they see the face of God. I love it. That's and, a perfect yeah. way to end. I love this. That's a good this is, it's amazing. Amazing. Thank you. You hit the, you hit the nail right on the head. And I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robertson. So good to be with you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us in America's Top Robertsons. And may this class be for Rafu Shalema, for Lior Tovi Ben Haya Ashna, Leia Eliana Baramuna, and Yoav Yeheskel Ben Perkia Bluma. Thank you again so much. Bye. Thanks. You're welcome.